0: And the subject of Philippians is disunity and conflict in the, in the church. And um, just studying this week, I mean, we've got this short passage. It's two verses, and um, if you've been a Christian or in the church for um, a period of time, you may have run across these two verses. It's, they're, they're obscure. They're weird. They are, they are calling out two individuals that are fighting. And um, it's an unusual two verses. Last week we read like 30 verses, and this week is two. And, and it's, a, it's a critical passage, which is why uh, we've just closely focused on these two verses today. Um, but it's, it's addressing this issue of, of conflict, and, and conflict just between two people. And so I was just looking this week into other contexts where conflict and disunity has such a a large effect in in various environments. And I ran across some study that a woman named Christine Porath, she's a professor at Georgetown University, um, she has found that the effect of one, what she calls a de-energizing tie or a de-energizing relationship, the effect of one de-energizing tie is four to seven times greater than it's effect, on its effect in the environment than a positive one. Negative he- effect four to seven times greater than a positive one. Um, and this then spreads throughout an entire team or, or even organization. She's found that if an employee has a pattern of toxic actions, which she defines as ongoing negative judgments, negative feelings, behavioral intentions towards another person, it leads to multiple employees spending more time and energy navigating that toxic relationship than doing their job. These toxic relationships, or these de-energizing relationships, lead to less information sharing, plummeting motivation and performance, decreased sense of thriving at work, more conflict, yes, less unity and trust, lower team performance, reduced sense of belonging and an increased likelihood likelihood of people leaving the organization her studies reflect the dynamic that Paul is addressing here in the Philippian church now again she's studying the effects of just small numbers of people one or two people in an organization and how that that toxic person can spread throughout um, and many, 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 many people, causing people to leave the workplace and just bringing productivity and effectiveness down. And so this, this dynamic of, of conflict in a work environment is reflecting the same dynamic present within the church. And that's what you see here in this passage. We have these two women, Iodia and Syntyche, fighting in the church so what i want to do is just kind of walk through who are these people um, and why does paul (laughs) call them out there are just a few other instances where paul calls people out in in his letters and it's usually um people that that uh, he sees nothing positive about at all so he calls these women out so we're going to look at what's going on here with these two women why was their conflict so critical and why does it just pop up here in this book whose dominant themes from a cursory read seem to have more to do with joy than addressing some sort of conflict so who are euodia and syndicate well paul calls them co-workers now co-workers meant that they had some sort of contribution into the progress of the gospel There's no indication that they were like on a team with him, like they were a traveling team or anything like that. All indications seem that they were present in Philippi at that local church there. So when Paul was in Philippi, they somehow contributed to his efforts to put the gospel there from an evangelistic standpoint and then establish the church. It's likely that they had some way of materially supporting Paul, either in Hosting house church meetings, okay, which is what we saw Lydia doing in Acts chapter 16, or in materially supporting Paul uh, um, just from their finances. Um, David Petterlin, in his book, Paul's Letter to the Philippians in Light of the Disunity of the Church, says that putting one's material resources at the disposal of the congregation and in support of missions appears to be, Paul's, in Paul's mind, A sufficient reason for calling one his co worker. So, in Paul's perspective, somebody was a co worker if they gave of themselves for the strength of the church and the support of his mission. That was a co worker. It didn't need to be a, a Timothy or a Titus who elected to stay single and give themselves entirely to the vocation of the gospel. It didn't have to be somebody like that a coworker could be somebody in a local church saying, "Hey, you can host a house church in my house. Hey, Paul, I know that you and your team are in need of some material support. Here's some money or here's some food." That was a coworker to Paul. People that were critical to the gospel's planting and an ongoing progress in an area. It's very likely that they were deacons in the church. Now, this passage doesn't say that they were deacons. But Philippians, if you recall from the first message, or second message, Paul is addressing in this letter the elders and the deacons. It's the only letter that he addresses the elders and deacons. And as he calls these women co-workers... You have to look at the other places in Scripture where Paul is speaking of somebody similarly. And so Phoebe is a woman that Paul sent to Rome with a letter. She had been a deacon in the church in Centria, and she was also called a co-worker. So, and these women clearly have some sort of leadership role in the church, to, this, to the point to where the progress of the gospel in that place is dependent upon them. And so it's likely that they were deacons. Okay, Paul. There were women identified as deacons in the scriptures and in the first three centuries of the church. So it's likely that they were deacons, or at least some type of significant leaders that had materially supported Paul, had been critical to the strength and progress of the gospel there, in Philippi. Now it's very possible that one of these women was actually the Lydia of Acts chapter 16. So if you go back to chapter 16 of Acts, it says that there was a woman whose name was Lydia, and she compelled them, after coming to faith in Jesus Christ, coming to faith in the gospel, she compelled Paul and his team to come and stay at her house. And so this would have been Three or four people coming to stay at her house. She had a household. She was a businesswoman. She had material means. She was independent, most likely a widow, which is what led to a lot of women, especially in this area, having a lot more freedoms than women that were not married. We don't need to get into the details of that. And so it was common for people to refer to others by their place, where they came from. So it's, it's entirely possible that this woman in Acts chapter 16, that her formal name was not Lydia, but the Lydian, because she was from Thyatira, and a Thyatira was in the region of Lydia, all right, and that was an area known for its purple dye making. So it's, the text isn't conclusive, but it's possible that one of these women actually was the Lydia of Acts chapter 16, and Luke didn't want to... Formally use her name in in that in Acts chapter sixteen for, for whatever reason. Anyway, that's kind of speculation, but it's a woman like Lydia. Okay, if it's if one of these women wasn't the Lydian of Acts sixteen, Yodia and Syntyche are like a Lydia. They were critical to the gospel's strength in Philippi. They were critical to Paul's ongoing mission since the church from the very beginning supported Paul materially in his efforts, and so these were these women they were leading women substantive contributors to paul's mission and they were fighting they were fighting and it seems like it seems like that this conflict between these two women was actually kind of the crux of all of the disunity in the church that that Paul's letter is speaking of. From the very beginning, chapter 1, Paul is defending himself and urging the church to be unified. And then he says later in chapter 1, whether I come and visit you guys or whether I stay, I want you to stand firm as one man with one mind, with one spirit for the progress of the gospel. Immediately, he's addressing disunity. Immediately, he's addressing all of the church. He uses the word all more than, at the beginning of his letter more than in any of his letters addresses the elders and the deacons. He's, a, he's wanting to make sure the leadership are paying attention because it seems like in this church the problem is with the leaders to some degree. So whatever this conflict was, it, was, it seems to be at the center. Now, the, the, one of the challenging aspects of this letter is that we don't know what the conflict was. It's possible because Paul starts out in such a defensive tone about his own ministry, it's possible that the conflict was around Paul's ministry. Is it legitimate that he's in prison? And one of the two women may have had a disagree- had a perspective, one of the two women may have had a perspective that, hey, Paul being in prison means that he's not doing something right, which is why Paul may go into such a lengthy um argument in chapter 3 which we covered last week things we as humans tend to look at things from a fleshly or outside perspective and i am in a position of great weakness i used to be in a position of great strength but i've thrown all those things away i count them as loss for the sake of knowing christ and for paul to know christ meant to suffer in the way he did, being in prison for the cause of the gospel. And so he's like, it may seem like I'm in a weak position, but I'm in a strong position. He's arguing that. And so it seems like one of these women may have had the perspective that Paul's position is weak, therefore he's doing something wrong. And Paul's arguing against this triumphalism, this Christians should experience a life that is full of victory. Paul says No. That's a fleshly way of looking at this. Anyway, suspicion around Paul's ministry was going on. Was that what these ladies were arguing about? The text doesn't specifically make those connections. However, whatever it is that the ladies were arguing about, and it wasn't theological either, he doesn't count them into this group of dogs. Beware of the dogs in the beginning of chapter 3, those who undermine the gospel through their teachings. He doesn't put them in a category of the dogs to them to paul their names are in the book of life so they are sisters they are co-workers but they're having some sort of an argument and whether the argument was about paul or not their argument seemed to be the cause of this spread of disunity so they're grumbling and arguing and complaining and perhaps this fed an underlying spirit that was present about suspicion around Paul's ministry. So it could have been directly about Paul's ministry, or it could have just led to them being suspicious as an entire church about Paul's ministry. But whatever the cause, or whatever this argument was, it was having this this widespread negative effect, just like this Scientist, this professor at Georgetown University has found, one or two people grumbling, complaining, arguing, having conflict, spreads. And those of you in any sort of social environment, whether it's paid vocational work, whether it's a small community of people, whether it's your own families, you all know and have experienced the effect of people that are, quote, toxic, right? And how much time that it takes in thinking how you're going to navigate those relationships. Before you go to, if it's somebody at work, before you go to work, maybe they had a bad experience the previous day or the previous week, and you're knowing that going in today, this week is going to be a challenge, or this day is going to be a challenge. i got to bring up this issue. We've got to work on this project together. And so you just spend so much time Time and emotional energy thinking through, how do I get through this in a way that least affects me emotionally and that leads to getting our work done? I mean, I know we've all been in those type of experiences. These kinds of things go on in the church, and their widespread effect happens in the church. And it can be something as small as a conflict between two people. It could be a husband and wife. It could be two friends in a house church. I mean, if you could just imagine, if you could just imagine um, if we had a leader from one house church and another leader from another house church, and they, they get in conflict. And let's say this house church strongly supports Twin Cities Ministries, and the other house church strongly supports our work in, in Mozambique and Portugal, all right? One of, the, one of the effects that this researcher has found is that, is that this, these ongoing toxic relationships affects buy-in to the group and affects a sense of belonging. And what happens over time if the conflict isn't addressed is that these, these two house churches would increasingly feel, huh? I'm not sure I'm as supportive or feel like I belong here like I used to. And so you begin to emotionally pull away. And as you emotionally pull away, you physically pull away, and your material support pulls away. And it begins to affect the broader things that these two house churches and leaders were supporting. So you can see. I and mean, these things take time. They happen over time. But you can see, because of the, the human relationships and the unity required for the sustaining of all on, all, on all of the things that churches will be a part of, that these kinds of conflicts, left unresolved, can really lead to the breakdown of an entire church. I mean, it's, pos, it's possible that many of you in here, I know some of you in here have been a part of churches where there has been conflict on leadership and that's led to church splits, boom. Sometimes the churches are reborn, Sometimes they're not. Their their corporate work together would stop. And so it's a strange two verses um, because it seems so... Why is Paul dealing with this conflict that these two women are having? He writes a whole letter, and then he just brings this up. Well, it's, again, these two women and the conflict they were having was the cause of the entire letter. No other situation addressing disunity is present in this letter. So how does it get resolved? How does Paul want it to get resolved? Well, first of all, he addresses it publicly. He addresses it publicly because conflict between two leaders, two influential people, has the potential to have a greater impact in the church. So He's going to deal with it publicly. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul says, when an elder is caught in sin, okay, not when an elder confesses sin, but when an elder is caught in sin, like the elder is hiding something, and he's been hiding something for a while, and he's found out, and it hasn't been confessed in an open way, but it's had to be revealed because he's been caught. He said, Paul says, deal with it publicly so that everybody sees it as an example. Problems and conflicts with leaders have to be dealt with publicly because the effect of, that, of those leaders, their, their sin or this conflict, uh, it's widespread, and it's already widespread. If it's going on, it's affecting other people. So the effects of that sin or that conflict has to be addressed publicly. So everybody knows, hey, we know what's been going on, we're putting an end to it, and so the gossip, the wondering, the disunity, all of the things that are affected by the conflict or the sin, they get stopped as well. And so that's why Paul had to address it publicly. There's a need to address it. And he needs there's a need for those those leaders, these two women to repent of it directly. And so you could imagine you could imagine getting that letter. Now these letters, it's not like Paul wrote a private letter to Iodia and then a private letter to Syntyche. He wrote a letter to the entire church. This letter would be read in front of the entire congregation. Okay? So you could imagine for months this this undercurrent of conflict has been going on and there's been gossiping and arguing and disputing and all this stuff going on under the surface in the church. And then... Epaphroditus comes, and he's got a letter from Paul. We haven't heard from Paul for a while. wonder how he's doing. Great to see you, Epaphroditus. We heard you were sick. We're glad you didn't fail in your mission. Seems like Paul's failing in his mission. And so this letter, then they're going to meet together as a church, and this letter's going to be opened up, and they're going to be reading through it. Then all of a sudden, hey, church, there's two women in conflict. Whoa. It's not like they had a trailer or a preview. This was an open letter to the church. These two women were confronted directly with the conflict. And they were told to get it resolved. And then he says, true companion. Now, we don't know the identity of this true companion. He actually calls a third person out. I want you to lead the way in helping these women come to a resolution with their conflict. So, oftentimes... There needs to be somebody that initiates resolution. When the two people are not, the church needs to take responsibility to initiate reconciliation between two people that are causing problems. Okay. Now, hopefully, those two people take initiative, but if not, the leaders do. And there needs to be a role of accountability. So in this instance... The accountability is the whoever this true companion or noble companion was, and then the second level of accountability is the entire church. Hey, we've been told not to complain or argue about anything. Ladies, your two argument, your argument between each other doesn't seem to be weighty enough to allow for the effect that it's having. It wasn't a theological issue. Paul didn't have any when, when Paul had a, a theological complaint with somebody, he addressed it. No theological complaint. Whatever their conflict was, was important because it was affecting the progress of the gospel. And what Paul has essentially asked them, if you get into the teaching that has led up to this point, is, hey, I want you to be of the same mind. And he actually uses that same phrase. I think the text here says, um, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. The phrase is actually the same exact phrase that he uses in chapter one. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to have the same mind in the Lord. He's drawing back to what he said Women have the same mind. Have the same mind. Which then he later says in chapter two have the same love, have the same spirit, think of the other person as more significant. I find that that's a better translation than better. The word better, it seems like they are a better person than you. And you're like, better in In what way? Whereas I think if you translate it as more significant, which is similar but a little bit different, their opinion is more important or has a greater effect than your opinion. If we think of each other as having a greater effect or a greater potential, okay, maybe that's another better word, they have a better, greater potential than you do. Yield to them. Think of them as more significant than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. These are all within this category of what it means to have the same mind. So whatever their conflict was, Paul is saying, listen, ladies, Set aside your opinions and your differences and get back to one-mindedness on what matters, the gospel and its presence in the world. Because right now, the presence of your conflict is causing harm in the light that the gospel is supposed to shed and in its material support of me we're going to see in a couple weeks that the philippian church stopped supporting paul for a while we saw a hint of it in chapter 2 where he says that that uh, epaphroditus has met a need that was lacking from you so somehow the philippian church dropped the ball epaphroditus picked it up and carried it on his own but then he says, he'll return to chap, in chapter 4, and he says, I am glad that you have revived your concern for me. So, ladies, whatever you're arguing about, it isn't just your small argument. It's not just you two that are affected. You're affecting the entire church, the gospel's perspective in the world, and it's in the material support of me. That's what he's saying. Put your interests, set them aside, for the greater good of the gospel set aside conceit quit thinking that you are a higher person set aside selfish ambition quit pursuing your own interests the gospel's interests are not being solved the interests the interests of jesus christ are not being pursued with you too in your conflict have the same purpose to know christ it's all of chapter three paul says this i've thrown out all my other purposes I'm no longer trying to be somebody in the world. You know, Alexis, your testimony was was beautiful, but that is where all of us are at. We all have this pursuit of becoming somebody, of making a name for ourselves, of becoming what the scriptures would call righteous. It's not just this moral goodness or holiness. We have a vision in our minds and in our spirits of what we think we can be of what we can show the world. And Paul says I've given up all of that for the sake of knowing Christ and being found in him. And to Christ that's hey give up your life for the sake of me. Give up your life for the sake of the gospel. Count everything else as loss. Give it up. And it's hard to do and sometimes we don't see it. I mean, again in Alexis's testimony she didn't she didn't see it. God had to take her through a process, you know, and so we can't, sometimes we just can't be told, hey, here's your problem, and I have a tendency to do this to myself and to others, hey, here's your problem, I see it clearly, give it up and get on board and make the right decisions. But God in his goodness wants us to walk through a process where we see, oh, I think you said I needed the nine months to see my own sin and to see where I was pursuing my own righteousness rather than that of God's. That is exactly where all of us are at. And so he's wanting to... He's, Paul is asking these women to give up whatever it is that was so important to them. And it must have been important to them for this to be going on for so long. These, yes, we're not talking to baby, about baby Christians here. These were people that had given a lot of energy... A lot of time, a lot of money, and a devotion to Jesus Christ. They were co-workers with Paul. These weren't baby Christians. But as all of you know, especially those of you that are leaders, we're we're not um, free from the temptations of the world to make a name for ourselves. And the older we get in the Lord, the less likely the problems are going to surface externally, the more interior they are. And you don't take evil things and make them good. You take good things and make them the best. Good things. And these things become then priorities. So somehow, some way, some something important. And Paul wants us to count these things as loss. Whatever it is you think is so important, if it's affecting the unity of the church, if it's affecting the support of the mission, if it's affecting the progress of the gospel in this place if it's causing arguing and complaining and disunity, then you need to set it aside for the greater cause of the gospel. And the question that we are called to and the question that we have to wrestle with is the question, well, is this life? I hate to keep picking on you, Alexis, but it was such a a beautiful testimony to the sermon and to the gospel. I didn't even know if I needed to preach this morning after that. What we struggle with is the question, can I give this up and still have life? Sometimes it takes us nine months. Sometimes it takes shorter. Sometimes it takes us years. Is giving up what I'm holding on to really going to bring me life? You know, we watched, uh, we had a pretty laid back, lazy weekend here at the Stagho house. And one of the shows we watched was Crazy Rich Agents. Have you ever seen that show, Crazy Rich Agents? Anybody seen that? It's pretty hilarious. Anyway, um, I won't get into the details of the story, but um, like the richest family, in, the whole thing takes place in Singapore. One of the richest families in Singapore, the, the son, the heir apparent to this large developer dynasty, uh, lives in New York. And he he met a woman who was not rich, from a broken family and troubled past and all this stuff. And well, they end up obviously wanting to get married. And so she travels to Singapore, gets exposed to all this elaborate wealth of her, of her fiance, of her boyfriend, and uh, they have you know they go out and have parties. The women go off and have a party, and the guys go off and have a party because they're for another they're there for another wedding. And so the women are off on this, this extravagant, extravagant bachelorette party. And uh, the movie's pretty clean. Um, but one of the features of this bachelorette party was um, an all-expense fashion clothing spree. They could, they could pick out any article of clothing in this place, and the, the host of the party would pay for it. And so these are all like super rich young women, and they all go crazy, and they all start fighting and bickering and literally going to, 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 to physical fighting for these clothes. And one of the ladies, she's kind of standing back, she's wanting to avoid the frenzy, and she goes, she made this statement, it really stuck in my mind, the only thing that stuck in my mind from the movie, no one goes crazy after free stuff more than rich people. I, used to, I said that is a that is a statement about the reality of whatever sin it is that we choose to pursue. Because contentment doesn't come by acquiring what we desire if what we desire isn't Jesus Christ. Because nothing brings fulfillment. So here you saw all of these young wealthy well-dressed women going crazy and fighting each other for more clothes. But that's what it is whether it's food or whether it's money, or whether it's status from our our job, or whether it's promotions at our work, or whatever it is. We're we're never satisfied. We're like rich people that just go crazy after more and more free stuff. And it just leads to more jealousy and gossip and conflict because we're all getting in the way of what we want to selfishly pursue because of what we believe is going to bring us life. And that's the hard question for us, is giving up these things that I've longed for, is that really going to lead to life? Will God really give me a sense of life and a sense of meaning and fulfillment, a sense of belonging, a sense of security, a sense of accomplishment, a sense of being a part of something? Are all these things going to really happen if I give up what I'm longing for? And that's the question. That's the question. And the challenge of it, and it is so <laughs> it's so, it's um, so, the beauty of conflict is that it's apparent. Like James asks, what is the cause of the conflict and the dissension among you? Isn't it the selfish interests that you're pursuing? And the ch- the, so the, the presence of conflict always reveals selfish ambition. It always reveals conceit. It always reveals the the clamoring after something for our own righteousness. And so Paul just, he doesn't need to spend very much time. Two verses. Hey, you guys are in conflict, and this is the seed. It's pretty obvious to Paul. And so for us, whether it's in our families or in our house churches, or in the church at large. And these kinds of things happen. These kinds of things pop up in our church. They do. You all know about them. Some of them. They come up. They affect the church. And the conflict is clear. Even if it's just between you and your spouse, the conflict is clear. Or between another person, the conflict is clear. And so the the fact that our sin gets exposed cannot be hidden and you can just deny it but how long can you deny the conflict the conflict just doesn't go away until there is some change some change of heart and then the change is this are we really going to have the same mind not are we all going to have the same opinions about everything okay we're going to enter into this building process okay it's going to lead to the opportunities for a lot of conflict and division about things that are just matters of opinion, all right? We can wrestle through those things. Anything involving our time, anything involving our money, anything involving our our commitment, all of which Christ calls us to give all of ourselves to. Lots of opportunities for conflict and division. Lots of opportunities for us to hold on to our opinions, and it really does come down to this idea of having this same mind. Having the same mind. What is the mind? That we live our life for the faith of the gospel, for the advancement of the gospel, for the progress of the gospel, for the holding forth of the gospel into our world, for living lives worthy of the gospel. You guys, that, that has to be our collective mind. Because that is the only thing greater than all of us. That, that's the only thing greater than all of us. That all of us can, whatever it is, submit and throw away as loss. For the sake of being found in Christ. And when he, when he says being found in Christ, being found in the will of Christ. Being found in the will of God. I want When Christ returns, I want to be found in him. I want to be found in him with my mind focused on the gospel. And so... I'm able to put aside my own opinions. I'm able to resolve conflict. I'm not going to hold on to it. I'm going to resolve it. We're going we're to look at forgiveness. We're going to look at confession. We're going to address what it is we're arguing and fighting about. And it's hard to do. It's hard to have this mind. It's hard to give up on what we believe is going to give us life. It's hard until we really come face to face with the person who's asking to do this. It's Christ. He's asking us to give up our lives for the sake of knowing him for the progress of the gospel. And if he hadn't gone before us it would be a hard request to take seriously. But that is the unique thing about Christianity. It is the unique thing about Jesus as God. No other God. No other person thing or person or being who has claimed to be God has come and suffered in the form of humanity and has endured the worst suffering of this world for the sake of others. Because Paul says, have this mind which was also in Christ. Who being God did not consider it something to hold on to, even though he had every right to. Did not consider holding on to his place and glory of being God as something to hold on to, but gave himself up, obeyed father, his father to the point of death so that we could have life. And that, great, that put him into a place of glory, and that's going to put us, and has put us into a place of glory. And so, we, it's a hard request to make, but Jesus made it, and he could make it because he, he's done it. And it's a hard request to follow him unless our heart has been melted by the truth of the gospel that Jesus has done the same thing and that he through his dwelling of uh, in us will give us the energy and the power and the ability to follow him in that but are we willing to change our minds and to have the same mind that Christ did that's the question let me pray